Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Ransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. My mission at Roland Ransfield has been to create magic out of the relationships I can bring together. That is how Manchester survives and thrives time and time again in adversity. This podcast celebrates those people that come together to make this city the greatest city on earth. People like my guest, Shalina Begum. The resilience that people want to see their city develop and flourish. People are there to support each other. One thing, again, at Manchester that I really like is this collaboration. Shalina is the business editor at the Manchester Evening News and she spent over 20 years in journalism, starting a career as a junior reporter on the Asian News. She was just 17. Not many journalists have got their own Wikipedia page, but Shalina's got one and you'll soon find out why. Born and raised in Rochdale, it's a place that's still a home with a husband and two young kids. And working for the Manchester Evening News for over 20 years, reporting on some of the most incredible stories that have come out of our city region, you're going to be hard pushed to find a more dyed-in-the-wool mank than Shalina. I've known Shalina for a long time and she has knocked back some of my stories in the past, I'll be honest to say. But I'm delighted to have time to sit and chat to her today about her experiences of being at the forefront of some of Manchester's biggest business stories in the past 20 years. Shalina, thanks so much for joining me today and we built this city. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I've obviously worked in PR for a very long time and along with the team at Roland Ransfield, we've had to pitch stories into you for clients and I know that you won't take anything that's not going to jump off the page. So first of all, I want to ask you, what makes a great story? For me personally, and this has been the same for me for the last 21 years, when I walk out that room, it gets me excited and I think I can't wait to write that up doesn't happen all the time but it does happen quite often and I know and those stories always do well um it's about curiosity originality um and just finding something that I know is going to be relatable for our audience and that's always really important because you've got story in mind and you've got also need to think about what the audience wants to read and obviously that's changed over recent years but definitely is when I walk up that room and get really excited about that person or what they're doing um or that story really. And do you feel as a journalist you've just got an innate um sense for a story are you always looking out for the next thing? So um you have to be curious you have to be curious about the person you're speaking to about you know, for me as a business journalist, you know, what that company is doing and why they're doing it or that new product that they're making. You know, sometimes I might get a press release and it sounds a bit boring. Then you speak, pick the phone up and you speak to someone. It's actually really interesting. And it's and that curiosity gets you your story. If you didn't have that, you know, that if you didn't have that in the first place, it will make your life a bit difficult trying to be a journalist and a reporter. Mm. I think I can relate to that because people always say to me that I ask a load of questions so I am quite nosy but there's always something behind the what somebody's telling you the story's always behind that I think do you find that? Absolutely I mean um, I sort of started my foundation in local journalism in local newspapers and going back 20 odd years ago you'd um, spend often hours at a council meeting or going through council papers and it'd be hundreds and hundreds of um, sheets of paper and in there, you'd find some really, really good gems. It could be a planning um, application, and it's an interesting um, building that's going up in your local town, and it'll be hidden somewhere. 
in like 200 pages and those are the ones that make the best stories and I think that's really given me a good base for who I am today because I learned the old-fashioned way (laughs) and then it wasn't social media it was going to those meetings and meeting might start at six o'clock you're there till 10 you've got two stories but they'll be really good two strong stories that you walk out with um I spent sometimes weekends going to community group meetings might sound a bit boring now but you met people people spoke to you people sat down with you and they will tell you stuff that you wouldn't otherwise know about and that's because I personally used to go to those meetings to get those stories and and that's that's how we did things back then and that's how you know local papers were that's why people bought the Rational Observer for example because we had 15 odd journalists doing that day in day out. Mm, absolutely my kids can't believe that I managed to start a business without the internet so that you know just relying on a fax and then we when I first started my job in PR we used to send out press releases on paper put them in an by envelope <laughs> send them by post and then you'd either you'd stick them on your spike or they'd go in the bin wouldn't they <laughs> yes so we had this yeah so we had a spike we were coming to work open the post if it wasn't interesting I'd go in the spike if it was interesting we'd pick the phone up and we'll ring people and now it's totally different now I give out 200 emails a day and it just goes into your delete bars and you keep it for um, another occasion so yeah and it's obviously like the news agenda is so fast-paced now the landscape's changed massively hasn't it um is it now a race to get eyes on how how is that different for you you can't take a story and just sit on it and nurture it and let it grow and develop it's a race out the door isn't it completely completely um you know, Twitter is what changed it for us, really, more than any other social media platform. It was definitely Twitter. You'd get something. And now journalists, you know, they might not even have the full story, but they know they've got something concrete. And it might be just Twitter saying, this has just happened. Come back for more. And, you know, the, yeah, that that whole, you know, holding on to a story, I think that disappeared a long, long time ago. You know, the way people consume news is so instant. It's now and that's how we've been doing it and it's about being at the forefront of news, having a team of talented writers who have got a nose for good news, who are on social media platforms or who are out and about meeting people, meeting their contacts to get that um, story in first. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter if you get it in first or not. Sometimes it's also important that you get the right story. So you might have the headline, you might put it out first. You've not got the right story. You've not spoken to enough people. If there's not enough in there, then, you know, you'd lose that quite quickly as well. Absolutely. And so there's that time of making sure that you're checking the facts and the stories right. So does that put a lot of pressure on you as journalists, though, with that kind of the dichotomy between getting the story right and getting it out first? Definitely. I think um, we do it quite well in um, regional journalism. Fake news has had a big impact on how we produce our stories. Um, I think there's still a lot of trust in local media, still a lot of trust in the Manchester Evening News brand. People come to us because they know they're going to get the right story. And we do take our time. You might see somebody else has broken something, but we'll look into it and make sure that it is what, what it says it is. And even if we see a fake story and it's doing its round, sometimes it's also important for us as the local media to then go on social media saying, we've seen the story, we're just checking it out, we'll come back to you. An example is the Manchester bomb. We had journalists out there straight away and people were coming to the Manchester Evening News site because they wanted concrete facts, wanted to know what was happening. And 
you know, that's when you realise the, the trust people have in their local paper and their local journalists. And the golden era of print media is obviously over um, and it's so much focused around digital. Well, it's not over, but it's a declining uh, readership, isn't it, with print, which is, you know, I find very sad, actually. But um, Manchester Evening News, your reach is actually growing all the time, isn't it, through its digital as well. So there's been kind of really very encouraging figures. People still want that news. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we've had quite a few months where we've reached um, one billion page views, which is which is massive for a regional um, newspaper brand. It is declining. Um, our print products it is in decline, but it's not it's not dead yet. We're just prolonging its life for as long as we can. People are still picking it up. Um, we launched. I think it's been about a year. We launched um, MEN on Sunday. You know, surprisingly, that's done really well because in there you've got these long reads, um, investigative journalism, um, people picking it up because they want to read more substance and it's doing well for us. So there are times when it still is working and people still want to pick up their paper. That's not always going to be the case and digital is really important and we're really big on getting news out there on Facebook, on um, Twitter, Instagram's doing really well for us. Um, just making sure it's just providing people the relevant news, relatable content, keeping them up to date, whether it's sports, whether it's what's on, um, everything that's been happening during lockdown. Um, that's been really, really important. People have been coming to us to find out, you know, what is Boris Johnson saying? What's Matt Hancock saying? How does this impact us in Greater Manchester? Absolutely. I've had a few stories. My mum always used to get upset. So when we, I got a client into the Manchester Evening News, she was really upset that it didn't have my name on it. But I told her it didn't work like that. Because she, when I was little, I used to write to Junior News every, like every week. They used to be sick to death of me. I even got a, something printed when my budgie went up onto the curtain rail. And they actually ran that story, the picture of the budgie. So uh, that was when I decided to go to PR. <laughs> I still get excited just to see my byline. That's never changed. I remember my first byline 21 years ago and it was the most exciting thing ever and that still hasn't changed. I still enjoy picking something up and it's got my byline in there. Do you still keep your cuttings? I've got a scrapbook. (laughs) (laughs) I've not, um, I've kept every single copy of the business magazine. I've still got that. Um, When I used to work for Asian News, I've still got every single copy of Asian News ever produced. It's in my attic. I always think, when I'm long gone, my kids or grandkids might open that and they might see me in there. And for me, that's quite important to leave a bit of legacy behind. Completely. Absolutely. And on print as well. It's going nowhere, is it? How old are you when you decided that you wanted to be a journalist and what was its appeal? <laughs> um, I've always known I want to be a journalist ever since I was a kid. Born and raised in Rochdale, I don't come from a wealthy family, it was just, you know, working class family. And my mum was a machinist and she always wanted her kids to do better than she did. And it sounds really cliche, but um, Lois Lane was my idol as a kid and I really wanted to do what she did. Um, and I remember when I started college and I'd be on the number 17 bus driving past the Rochdale Observer office on Drake Street, looking into offices thinking one day that's where I want to be and three years later that's where I was <laughs> I knew what I wanted and I knew I was going to get it and it was just sort of hard work and finding that routine. 
such a brilliant story. Yeah, um, so that's where you know that's where I wanted to become a journalist. Um, and I did what every other person does. I did work experience. And I was 17 when I first did work experience at the Rochdale Observer. And at the time, um, the company, which is owned by the Guardian Media Group, were launching a new product. It was the Asian News. Um, the big Asian community in Greater Manchester, and they wanted a product to cater towards that community. So um, the editor was Steve Hammond at the time, and he took me on for two weeks. Obviously, I loved the work experience. They were after a lady who happened to be my neighbour, and I managed to get them in contact with her. I was there when they interviewed her, and that was the first front cover of the Asian News. So a year after that, when a vacancy came up, Steve Hammond rang me up. I was about to start university, and he just said, look, we've got a trainee position coming up. Can you come in and have a chat? So I went in, spoke to Steve Hammond, spoke to their HR, and I got the job there and then. I never went to university, and I've never looked back. That's such courage to take a decision like that on like the kind of a toss of a coin. It's a real sliding doors moment. Do you just absolutely know you had no kind of compunction about making that decision? Absolutely not. I thought, well, I'm going to go to university to then get a job in newspaper. Here's an opportunity to do it straight away. They were going to pay for my uh, journalism course. They're going to give me my training. Steve Hammond was an old fashioned editor. He worked on Fleet Street. You know, he'd been there, done that. To get the kind of training I would do one-on-one with this great journalist, it was, I just couldn't turn it down. So within a, yeah, within a week of that interview, I started my role in journalism, absolutely having no idea what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, at press releases. I had no idea what press releases were. I just thought you go into the office and you go out with your notebook and interview people. And you know, that is part of the process. But, you know, I was literally thrown into the deep end. And I feel like that's where I learned the most. And I had Steve Hammond sort of helping me the whole way through from going through my copy, sometimes being really harsh, always encouraging, always telling me um, how to do it, what to do. I mean, it was he gave me so much good advice, but the only one advice that I didn't take from him he was very bullish when it came to speaking to people. I'm very sort of quiet. You take my time. And that's one thing I couldn't be like. I couldn't be bullish over the phone. And that's one advice I didn't take from him. And I'm glad I didn't because I think the way I am and the way I approach things has worked in my favour in, in most occasions. I mean, you went from junior reporter to the editor of the Asian News and you were the youngest ever editor in the Guardian Media Group. So, as you say, massive learning curve for such a young person um, and taking lots of responsibility very early on. You went on to cover the Oldham riots. It was a big story for you at the time. And again, as a very young reporter. Yeah. um, So by the time the Oldham riots happened, I'd made some good contacts within the old um, Asian community. I mean, I used to get some really fantastic stories even before the Oldham riots. So when that actually happened, many non-Asian or white reporters were in Oldham trying to speak to people from the Asian community to find out what's going on, why is it happening? They couldn't get in. People just refused. Because there's so many negative stories at the time about Asians in, in the papers. They couldn't get in. I went in and I got the stories that the um, mainstream newspapers weren't able to get. You know, we're talking about relationships. I built that relationship up with that community for them to trust me. That's where I had an advantage over other uh, more experienced um, journalists. 
And do you feel that you that was learnt or that was just your nature, your way, kind of your values were for them to trust you in that way? Both, both. I mean, it's not, it wasn't easy just to go into that community to make, you know, I was, by nature, I'm very shy. And it's coming out of that comfort zone. And once I made that step, it became easier to um, do that. But, you know, you're not a journalist without your contacts. <laughs> And to get a good story, you need those relationships. Otherwise, you know, you're going back to the office without any stories and you're just looking at you like, why have you got Shalina? So, you know, one, one thing, you know, Steve Hammond always said, you know, I expect you every day, I expect at least two to three original stories. To do that, you need people. And without mm. people, you don't have stories. Mm. So it's all about the people. Absolutely. And so... The Oldham Rise is 20, 20 years next year, isn't it? The anniversary That's, of yes, that. Yes, yes. So uh, you plan to go and back into the community and see how things have moved on since then? Yes. You know what? Um, Finish you say that. It's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement recently, just to see how much race relations in, in Oldham has actually changed over 20 years. I mean, I personally can see it has changed, but it'd be nice to go back to speak to those people who contact me originally saying, Shalene, this is happening, can you please come over and, and report on this? And I'm, I'm still in touch with those people, so I would like to speak to them and see what um, how, how, it, how it's changed. But also, um, one story is that really stood out to me during the riots um, it started when an old white pensioner was beaten up by a group of young Asian lads. At the time, it was reported as being him. It, it was reported as a race attack. That story went to court, and it wasn't a race attack. It was just a bunch of young lads who were being stupid and attacked. An old man had nothing to do with race. It was just kids being absolutely stupid. But when that case was originally reported, it was reported as a race attack. Mm. And that young lad um, who attacked the old man, he did have jail time. He's probably in his 40s, 30s now. Um, and I have actually, and it'd be nice to go and speak to him now and see how that impacted his life because that story then led to the race riots. And then a few years later, he went on to cover the Kashmir earthquake. And again, to just to gas on a plane and, and kind of go off and do that. What? How was that for you at the time? Uh, my parents didn't want me to go. Oh, I bet <laughs> they, they were didn't. really worried. <laughs> they were really like, oh, please don't go. And I wanted to go. It was like Nothing was going to stop me from um, doing that. Again, I had Steve like really encouraging me, saying, you, need, you can do this, you've got this. I found a group in Manchester who were taking aid to um, Pakistan. The lady who was leading the group was very, very well connected. And it, just, it was this coincidence that happened to join this group. This lady happened to be well connected, who when we got to um, Islamabad, she um, had contact with the army there who then managed to fly us over to Kashmir where I could um, interview people, interview people in the hospital that were impacted by the earthquake, you know, children who'd lost parents, parents who'd lost children. Um, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, when I was there, I didn't really think about what was happening. All I thought about was getting the story, getting it on video, interviewing people. And it was just, I think, it was exciting, it was scary, but... Um, all that has helped me do my job. You've also said that you feel a real responsibility to 
tell the story. And I know with um, Kashmir that you said that there's obviously a large Kashmiri community that you felt it was important for you to come back and tell them the story and relay that. Do you feel that responsibility as a journalist to always to kind of make sure that you are telling the story in the right way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And people read your stuff. They believe what you're writing and you have to make sure that, you know, with anything, you're doing the best that you can to tell people what they want to know, whether it's something they're going to like or, or, or not like. Um, you know, and again, it comes down to relationships and speaking to people. Um, I think I, I like people. Um, I like speaking to people. Um, I connect with people quite well. And I think because of that, people do open up to me quite a bit. Mm. And sometimes I've not ever had a problem not speaking to someone and getting what I needed to. And mm. I think that also just comes from me being a people's person and being able to speak to them on just a one-to-one basis, connecting with them, um, understanding them, and, and, you know, most importantly, listening to what they've got to say. Mm. And I think that's really stood me well um, in Kashmir during the olden riots and even now as a business um, editor. We built this city, exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community. So you joined the MEN as features writer and then you moved on to become head of the business desk just a year later. What stands out for you as sort of the biggest stories that have broken whilst you've been at the Manchester Evening News? Ten, ten years now I've been on the business desk and when I first joined, we were just going through the last recession. Mm. And it's funny how it's it's come around. And when I first started, it was all about big job losses, retailers um, going under. And it's funny how 10 years on, mm. it's gone full circle. I'm writing about the um, same stuff. Mm. But it was quite nice to start on the business team when things weren't looking so great. You know, um, the job losses, businesses going under. From that to then see the city just developed the way it's developed and I feel like I've been part of that journey mm. been quite an eye-opener because I feel like I've seen the city just flourish in front of my eyes and it's been nice to be part of that journey and it's a bit scary now because I feel like we've come full circle and you know I have full confidence that we're going to then go back to how it was if not better. But- well there's a real robustness isn't there in the past 10 years we've come we've come a long way and what are the biggest changes perhaps that you've seen in that 10-year period in terms of the city centre yeah so um i mean as you've seen yourself lisa it's the um sheer amount of development going into the city centre i mean even if i've not been there for a couple of weeks and you go back in you're like you just, the amount of new buildings that's you know open and the amount of new restaurants and cafes and the amount of like you know people in the city and it just gives the, the real sense of buzz and excitement about manchester which you don't get in you know, other cities you really i'm not just saying that because we are in Manchester and I really feel the difference in Manchester and other cities and I think um, leaders of Manchester will always say there's a resilience about Manchester and there's a resilience about you know from Mancunians which you, again you don't get get from other cities and I think we've been through a lot from like the IRA bombing from you know the Manchester bombing um, a couple of years ago there's a resilience that people want to see their city develop and flourish. People are there to support each other. One thing, again, at Manchester that I really like is this collaboration. You know, we've got businesses who are competing with each other, etc. When it comes down to it, people are willing to work together for mm-hmm. the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. You know, agencies will come together to work on something or going to pitch 
for a project. Uh, developers are willing to work together. Just you know, people knows people know the people. It's, it's quite a small city in a, in, in a way because everybody knows everybody, and, and nobody wants to see another business fail. Everybody wants to see everyone succeed, and I think that's what makes Manchester so special, and that's why we do so well and the way we do it. I think that's so true. Even though you know you're kind of strongest competitor, you'd never see anything. You wouldn't want them to see any harm. Absolutely. Sir Richard Lee said on the podcast, the last podcast, that that's what helped him to to rebuild the city in '96 after the IRA bomb, because already the collaboration and the partnerships had been created prior to that gave them the strength and resilience to kind of work through that 10 years following the bomb. Yeah, absolutely. Even with the Northern Powerhouse, it's not just Manchester on its own. You know, Manchester's quite willing to work with Liverpool and Sheffield mm. for the whole region to prosper and and, and do well. And even on a more personal level, um, you know, I quite happily speak to my, I say competitors, you know, journalists from other business journalists from other other uh, organizations such as business desk or the insider we quite happily i like, sit down and we'll share our stories you know stories that we've already written about um you know just we, we do get together quite often and we don't see each other as competitors we just see each other as colleagues working for different organizations we're all doing the same job and it's better to help each other than see each other as you know your rival <laughs> And a shared responsibility to make sure that the platform for the city region or the northwest is kind of represented. I think exactly, exactly, and in that is that shared interest, not just between business journalists, but I think across the city. And you've obviously interviewed some very impressive business leaders whilst you've been on the business desk. Is there anybody that's particularly stood out for you as somebody who's had really strong business ethics, or somebody that you felt that you've come away from that interview and really learned something? Um, so there's uh, two business leaders from the same organisation that um, I really enjoy speaking to them. Um, it was the co-op group. So um, Richard Pennycook, um, who sort of started the transformation, and then Steve Mills, who led the transformation. I always liked the co-op group, mainly because, you know, one of the reasons because it started in Rochdale, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. But it's a big organisation with, you know, strong values. And I think values that, you know, I hold quite strongly. And it's all about having a fair society and helping everyone out. And that's, you know, where the Courts Foundations are based on. And it's something that they very feel strongly about. So they were really interesting. Um, Chief Executive interview was very different um, to individuals leading the organisation at very different times. So Richard Pennycook was, you know, he, he was installed as chief exec just as the co-op was going through its own financial crisis. And then Steve joined in to now lead through its transformation. And, you know, the values of the co-op is really important to Steve and Richard at the time to make sure that if this organisation is going to survive, it needs to survive because it's helping people out. And that really resonates for me because I always feel like I want to help people out and that's what they're doing. Um, other people that I've interviewed that are really interesting. Um, Fred Doan was a really interesting person. Um, everybody knows him. His business is 50 years old now. Um, and I was told, you've only got 20 minutes, Shalina, an hour and a half later. <laughs> I was still <laughs> talking to him. Um, Matthew Moulding from the Huckery was really interesting as well. And it's another interview I got told you've only got 25 minutes an hour later we're still there um chatting away and he's not someone that often gives interviews so and that was just before you know 
the plans for the airport and plans for the group you know just it was nice to, nice to have interviews like that um else was there Peter Salmon when he first joined the BBC and about the BBC's move to um Salford and Angela Spindler when she was um chief exec at M Brown because you know I enjoy interviewing um male leaders but for me it's always interesting to interview female leaders as well so she's one of the first female leaders I interviewed and I found her really interesting along with Marnie Millard at um, Nichols. One thing I found from all of these chief execs and uh, leaders is that they're all very humble. You know, there's always this opinion that, oh, you know, chief executive of, and they've got 3,000 staff and they might have, you know, might not be as open and, you know, welcoming. And I always found the complete opposite. I always find that when you go and speak to these people, you know, they're there at the top because they are humble and they are likeable and, you know, people like them. That's why they're there. You know, if they didn't like them, I don't think they'll be able to do the job as successfully as as they do. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that I found that these people have in common is that you know they're very just nice, ordinary people just doing a really good job. Mm. I don't think you can get to that level of success without being nice to the people that you you know rely on to deliver what you deliver as a leader. Completely. We have an expression, the Roland Dransfield way, which is 15 values of, of how we try and hold ourselves accountable professionally and personally. And one of those is leaders create leaders. And I think what you're saying there is that people bring those people around them, don't they? And, they, and they, there's not that hierarchy in a successful organisation. Absolutely. Staff enjoy being in those organisations. Those staff prosper in those um, organisations. And mm. if you, it does definitely come from the top down. Mm, definitely and and obviously you know you get your stories you've got a team of people around you haven't you to deliver those stories and to deliver the Manchester Evening News online are there any of the values in the Roland Dransfield way that you can particularly kind of lean into yeah completely um so loyalty was one of them and that, that really um resonates with me because I've been with the Emian group in its various guises over the years 21 years and one thing I feel I've always been I've been loyal to the group and I've done well out of that. Um, integrity, I think, you know, if you don't have integrity and honesty in your job, then I think you fail as as a professional. And you know, even if you make mistakes, as long as you've got integrity and you're honest about stuff, it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, keeping it real. <laughs> I think no matter what you do, you have to be yourself and keep it real. And the one that made me laugh was the no dickhead. <laughs> And that made me laugh because um, not too long ago I interviewed um, a um, VC company and I asked them, you know, how do you make sure you're investing in the um, right company? And they said we have our number one rule is no dickheads. It works. (laughs) It made me laugh, but it works. (laughs) That's my (laughs) favourite. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform. Thank you. So is there anybody on your wish list for you that you've not interviewed but you really would love to? Um, so someone I've been chasing uh, it was sort of late last year and I've not managed to get hold of her, um, Colette Roche who left the Manchester Airport Group to go to Manchester United as their Chief Operating Officer. Who's a proper, you know, she's a proper Mancunian who's really done well. Um, 
I'd like I'd like to have an hour with Colette and speak to her about her journey to where she is now. I think that'll make a great interview. But also, you know, I think she's a great business leader and she's a great, you know, role model, especially for women in Manchester. So she's definitely on my um, to-do list. Well, she's on mine as well, so it's a race. Ah. Of listening to this, <laughs> we'll see who wins on that one. <laughs> do a joint one, Shalina. <laughs> Could you collaborate? Are you a United fan? Um, my dad's a United fan, and I actually interviewed Alex Ferguson when I was twenty-two, and it was an event called United Against Racism, and Alex Ferguson was there, and some of the footballers, and Steve Hammond. I was only like. Yeah, I was 22. I was quite nervous going down. And my editor was like, Shalina, you're fine. You'll be fine. Just just go to him and just speak to him. I didn't realise Alex wasn't a big fan of journalists at the time. And it's a good job I didn't know that. So I went and uh, the first thing I asked him was, um, Alex, when are we going to see the next Brown Beckham? <laughs> and he just laughed. And then he gave me a really lovely, it was only a short interview. It was like five minutes, but it was really nice. Let me have a picture I'm taking with him. And it's my dad's proudest moment. Oh, that's such a great story. I was going to say, if you're not a United fan, I'm definitely getting Colette first. But I think that's very <laughs> nice to be honest. But I mean, Sir Alex, if you can help me with him as well, that'd be absolutely amazing. <laughs> that'd be my proudest moment. Um, and so what do you love most about being a journalist in Manchester? So much happening in Manchester. Um, you can't sit still. Um I think Manchester, what's exciting is all the new sectors. So, the, you know, tech's been really exciting. All the tech firms in Manchester and the people behind it, whether, you know, it's Talk Talk moving over to Salford or it's um, a new startup. Really, it's, it just gets me really excited about the future of the city when you speak to um, these like startups, um, businesses that are scaling up, because it feels like there's a future here. Mm. And as long as there's a future in the city, I feel there's hope for you know, my kids when they're growing up and I hope, you know, they see the city as, as their home. And you know, that's what excites me. And that excitement has kept me going. You know, you, you never like show up a story in Manchester. There's so much happening. <laughs> Absolutely. And outside of journalism, you're very passionate about diversity and equality, inclusivity. You were chosen as one of the 100 role models in a gender, race and equality campaign like launched by the European Union. And you said to me that it's important um, that there still aren't very many visible um, role models like you, that young female of colour. What are you doing to help support and communicate the importance of diversity across Greater Manchester? Yeah, I mean, um, you still don't see enough brown faces and black faces on mainstream um, media. Mm. Um, and I think we're still a, a long way off. Um, I think if you take spinning fields, for example, when you're walking around spinning fields, you don't see much diversity in spinning fields. Yet Moss Side is only a mile down the road. And that seriously um, needs to change. I've always um, spoken in schools. Um, I go to primary schools quite often. I've not done as much recently with being a mum of two and having two little ones at home. But before that, is to go into primary schools and speak to young Asian girls? Because I think that's where the learning needs to start, not in high school, but when they're seven, eight years in um, primary school, speaking to them about, you know, opening up their horizons and looking at going to university and looking at different careers, but not just speaking to young girls, but also speaking to their mums. Mm. Some of these mums don't realise. It's really funny. So, um, quite often, 
little girls ask me, Miss, Miss, are you rich? Because I think I must have got to where I am because I've had a wealthy family backing me. And that's not the case. When I tell them my story, they're like, oh. And it's not something that they would have thought. And not just saying that they should consider journalism as a career. For me, it's about them opening up their minds to consider a wide range of careers that, you know, they can be who they want to be. And all it takes is hard work, great determination. And um, when I speak to these mums, their mums as well, sometimes the mums can't even, you know, they've not even thought about the daughters going to university. Well, why not? You know, what are you scared about? And it's nice somebody, nice for them to speak to me and see that, oh, yeah, you know, my, my daughter can do that. So I think that's where change needs to start and um, needs to happen. But I think organisations also need to make an effort to open up their open up their business to people from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, you know, print media has not been it hasn't been great to be honest. Um, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, we are now doing it. I was still a bit of a way off doing it, but it saddens me when I go to places like spinning fields and don't see enough diversity and mm. you know we've got so many diverse communities on our doorstep and they should be part of that future and part of the change and you know when we do that we will really see the change and we will see we'll really prosper when we have a diverse workforce we have a diverse community and you know, diverse in, in leadership as well um you know organizers don't realize when you don't have we don't have diversity you're also losing out commercially you know, um, young Muslims, for example, professional Muslims, they have a massive big disposable income. How are you trying to reach that? There's a massive mm-hmm. commercial opportunity that people not going to get get to that stage because their their organisation isn't diverse enough to do that. So, big mm. people are missing out. Mm. And I think that's a real central part of the Build Back Better efforts of the of greater manchester isn't it in terms of actually addressing those issues now yeah. it's really important that if things are broken what better time to actually make a difference and and build back in a different way is that clear and um you know i'm just glad the change is happening now it's, it's a shame it's taken this long really it should have happened when um 20 years ago when i was covering the olden riots yeah. but you know change with anything is slow <laughs> Yeah, so um, I'm hoping that we're not going to be having this conversation 10 years time. So tell me about your new project. You were a busy working mother and it's, you've got a new project called Working Mamas. Yes. So <laughs> um, as you know, Lisa, I, I was furloughed uh, recently. And when I um, had my son, who's, he's five and a half now, and I was returning to work, it's quite hard. I the, didn't know many, many mums who were working full time and had young children and the ones that I spoke to weren't that keen on their jobs were working part-time and there's a positive narrative about working mums I really enjoy my job and I wanted to come back and do it full-time I also want to be a good mum and I just want and wasn't a support network for that so it's something that I wanted to do for a while and then I was furloughed my good friend Tasnim Khalid who is also a new mum and she's a lawyer in Manchester City Centre she's from me saying Shalina let's do this so within a week, we've set up a website, we set up an Instagram page, and um, we've just done it. And it's not to make money or anything like that. It's just something that we want to do to show to other working moms. You know, there's a support network out there. You know, and it's good. It's nice if you want to do a good job. It's okay to go back to work full time. You know, you're not being a bad mom because, you know, you're not at home with your kids um, all the time. And you know, if you want to do that, that's that's okay as well. So it's about 
you know, providing a positive support network to other um, working moms and showing, you know, you can be a good mom and you can be a good employee or a good businesswoman. You know, you can have both. Mm-hmm. Um, it just and it's just how you manage it, really. So, we've had some really positive. Um, um comments about that a lot of like working moms want to um get involved in one way or another so yeah it's been quite exciting it's getting me busy um while i've been furloughed because i'm not good when i'm not working (laughs) and i think when i'm you know working i feel like i'm a better mom towards my kids Mm because my mind's active i'm happy and when i'm happy i'm having a happier mom and you know i think it's a whole circle so Mm. yes it's it's been good it's been fun (laughs) So the two things can coexist, can't they? I wish there'd been something like that when I was um, had my two very young ones. Yeah. The first thing that was out of my daughter's mouth was, "Where's my bloody mobile?" <laughs> so I think sometimes I was a bit worried about where the balance shifted between home and at work at times. Yeah. So lastly, um, as a journalist, you've covered some major successes and some huge challenges across Greater Manchester. How much of responsibility do you feel that the Manchester Evening News and other regional media has to tell a story which will encourage us to have faith that we can build back better as a city region? Um, so the Manchester Evening News, you know, I think over the last couple of months have done an amazing, amazing job. You know, we've got journalists who are all working from home who are all telling the story, mm-hmm. who are speaking to organisers, speaking to individuals impacted by um, the coronavirus, um, you know, doing live blogs, um, doing long, longer reads. It's just, we've got a talented team of people out there who really care about what's going on in their city and really care about their people. And, you know, more than ever, people are relying on us to t- to give them the information. And it just goes to show that journalism matters. Newspapers still matter. If it wasn't for us and if we weren't giving the right kind of stories to people, don't know where they'd be getting those kind of stories from you know regional journalism is important because of their trust mm. and they trust trust us to come to us to tell them what they need to know um at the manchester Evening news you know we've gone beyond just doing stories in greater manchester people often come to us to find out what's happening nationally as well and that all goes back to trusting the brand and trusting the journalists who right for that brand and more than ever I think journalism matters and you know with the current crisis people have to stop working um we've carried on we've carried on I know some people have been furloughed but you know come come back from furlough and people care and people yeah they've they've carried on to do a good job and I think we we can all see that from the kind of content that's been um created you know in paper online on our social media platforms I think without a doubt, it's just a constant, isn't it? Manchester Evening News, it's just such a key part of our city. Right, okay, I've got a quick fire round for you, Shalina. So what's the best thing to come out of Manchester? It's people, for sure. You know, Manchester wouldn't be without its people. Um, I think if we'd bottle them and sell them, we'd have a really great export. (laughs) What about your favourite building in Manchester? Um... The town hall, mm. uh, absolutely the town hall, and from all the modern skyscrapers, I think Beacon Tower is my favourite. Mm. It's taken me years to actually appreciate it. Do you know? I I totally agree because I obviously have done so much work in real estate, and I had a, an unhappy relationship with it to start off with because it was so 
it just changed the skyline and I've fallen in love with it over the years. Um, what's about your favourite view? Have you got a favourite view of the city? Um, one of the views that I like, you know, over Bridge Street, sometimes I just like standing there and just what, looking over the River Irwell and mm. when I say it's the view, it's just, sometimes it's quite nice. If it's a sunny day, it's just nice to stand there and just look out the mm. city. Favourite band or artist from Manchester? Um, <laughs> so Oasis and Stone Roses, but only later on in life because I hadn't heard of Stone Roses until I met my husband 12 years ago. And he said to me, how could you not know who Stone <laughs> Roses were? <laughs> and I said to him, I grew up listening to Bollywood music, Matt. <laughs> so he introduced me to Stone Roses and then took me to their concert as well. So, yeah. <laughs> and that romance was sealed at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, what do you order from the chippy? Oh God, um, f- fish and chips naturally. F- fish and chips and mushy peas. <laughs> I'm with you. So, Shalina, thanks so much for joining me on We Built This City. Thank you very much. It's been brilliant to talk to you and hear such an inspirational story about your passion and your knowledge from such an early age that you about the route that you wanted to take. And we need people like you to keep telling the story of the greatest city in the world. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Shalina built this city by listening, not talking, by sharing the stories of communities across Greater Manchester, and she's leaving a legacy in the loft. We built the city is out every Thursday. And my next guest is Tom Hetherington, CEO of Holden Media and founder of a portfolio of world-class Northern events, including the Northern Restaurant and Bar Exhibition and the Manchester Art Fair. This is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you want your company to be part of that, give us a call on the number we've always had, 0161 236 1122.